we're an entertainment company first. Like we don't want to make marketing. We want to make people laugh. And we want to be the funniest thing in someone's feed every day. Yeah. That's our goal. I'm Tom Ward, and over the last couple of years, I've had the chance to sit down with some of the biggest celebrities and influencers in the world. What I've always found most fascinating is the stories of the businesses that they've built behind the scenes. On this show, you'll get an inside look of what it takes to build a successful business from some of the biggest celebrities, business people, and up-and-coming entrepreneurs in the world. This is The Tom Ward Show. Hey guys, welcome to the Tom Ward Show where we talk to the biggest entrepreneurs in the world. And today I've got such an entrepreneur. We've got Mike Cesario, founder of Liquid Death Water. And I had to look because I always want to say liquid death metal. It just seems like death and metal should go together. It is in a metal can. It is in a metal can. You know, um, I heard you say that the company is all branding, which I think you're exaggerating a little bit because obviously it's a great product, um, you know, great water imported from the Alps. But you're really pretty on because, and I'll give you a story why. I've seen your ads on Instagram for ever, right? I'm scrolling, there it is. And it always attracts me, right? So I do a lot of prep for these things. So I'm kind of going through your website and going through your personal history and all that stuff. And I'm like checking out the merch, I'm like, I'm gonna buy a hoodie and a t-shirt like right now. And then I'm like, I can't really buy it if I've never tried the product. So let me at least try one first and then I can get the merch. Yeah. You know, where did you learn or get your branding chops? Because I mean, I can't name a brand off the top of my head that that's doing it better right now, especially well, on social. Well, I think packaged goods and beverage is traditionally a space where there's not a lot of really powerful brands. It, it's way more of a functional based approach that most brands take. Oh, we have this ingredient that's yeah. unique. Yeah. Why should you buy this over another one? Well, because this one has more electrolytes or there's functional things. But you step away from beverage and other things like look at apparel. Like you have a Rolex watch. Okay. You could have another watch that costs $10 that tells time just as good. Yep. Looks exactly yeah, like that. Yep. There's no real functional benefit. No. But you're willing to invest because there's a brand. It means something. They've spent a lot of time, money over years to make people associate something with that brand. And there's an emotional reason, not a rational one. There's no rational reason to have that, right? No. And I think people understand that in fashion a lot quicker. Like the average person's like, oh, even though I wouldn't buy a $700 Prada t-shirt. <laughs> you know, I, I, I understand why some people would. I get it's a brand thing, even yeah. though you can buy the same t-shirt made from the same materials, performs the same function at Target yep. for 12 bucks. Yep. They understand brand there. But in CPG, since it's traditionally such a like functional-based thing, people are like, wait a second. It's, it's all brand. I don't. I don't get it. But if you just kind of step away, I think it clicks for people. Oh, I now it starts to make sense. But like, yeah, in beverage, the only truly powerful, valuable brands are maybe like Red Bull, the extreme in your face. Well, they've just built a thing that goes beyond the liquid. Like people don't. Red Bull doesn't have twenty-five million followers on social because everyone loves their ingredient profile. <laughs> no. Yeah, it goes beyond the liquid. Formula They're, One team. Yeah, athletes yeah. doing crazy things. They entertain people. The brand means more to people than the liquid. The liquid's a part of it, Yeah, but it means more than that. And I think that's what the definition of a valuable brand is, when your brand transcends simple functionality. So you took a pretty simple product we're selling water here, yeah, right? right yeah. There is a million water brands out there. So did you have, does it come brand identity first and then go, okay, what product can we kind of align ourselves with to do this? Like, did you have the image of liquid death and kind of the tone and the voice of the brand and everything first? And then did you decide on water as being the product or how does it work? Well, we had the idea of the general concept, which was, it was really only unhealthy brands like alcohol, junk food that would do all the really funny, irreverent, cool marketing. Like you think of most of the funniest ad campaigns of all time that people remember. It's like Budweiser, Bud Light, Cheetos, Doritos, Snickers. Like it's all junk food and alcohol does all the cool, fun marketing. Where yeah. healthy brands 
never marketed that way. Like it's always very quiet, calm. Yeah, it's not about fun. There's no logical reason for why soda is more fun than water or more fun than any other thing. It's yeah. like it's a drink. Yeah, yeah. Tons of people drink all kinds of things. Um, it, it's literally just like a marketing thing that they decided to invest in. It's just the health food industry just never chose to invest in fun as part of their brand. And the voice, you're 100% right on that because when I think of healthy products, I think of like yoga mats and granola and calm and tranquil. Like I'm a healthy guy. I don't relate to that at all. I like the box. I like the lift weights occasionally. Yeah, right, like, yeah. I don't resonate with that at all. Right. But water's super healthy. And I think, does your background, because we were talking before about music, and you were you grew up on probably still are a metal and punk rock fan. And I think when a lot of people think about that demographic, they think of people strung out or all fucked up, right? But what they don't realize is when you look at a Henry Rollins or you look at um, Ian McCain and guys like that, you know, and the whole straight edge movement, like you can be healthy and, and kind of extreme and cool at the same time. Like, was that an inspiration for you as you're kind of bringing this to life? I think there's a lot of stereotypes across all areas of things, you know, and it's like, and people just assume this is what punk rock is, or this is what, I mean, yes, I listen to Slayer and Deicide and metal bands, but I also listen to, uh, you know, Adele and Nora Jones and Jay-Z and Chris Christopherson and like, and I think most people are most more. Most people are like that. Yeah, are more not one thing. And I think a lot of marketing tries to think, oh, if you listen to punk rock, you are this, or if you listen to Jay Z, then you are this. But the reality is, it's it's way more gray. And I think you look at again outside of beverage, and I, I use this reference a lot. But like, think about entertainment, like movies. Okay, what's the demographic of someone who goes see goes and sees a horror movie? You know, like I don't know. Jordan Peele, Get Out, one of the biggest movies that year, horror movie. Yep. Death, blood, destruction. Was it heavy metal guys that went and made that movie, a $200 million movie? No, it, no, was, it was regular wide, people. Yeah, wide range of people that just have a taste for a particular type of entertainment. Mm -hmm. um, I also bring up the stat like years ago, you know, The Walking Dead, a show about flesh eating zombies was the number two most popular show for Among women. women. Yeah. Yep. But people don't know that or even think about it. They don't think about it. Right. And if you're marketing to women, how many people are using a zombie campaign to market to women? Even though the data is there. They're using lifetime movies. Yeah. It's like, again, yep. they revert to these like low hanging fruit stereotypes that often are not true or even that effective. Yep. Hey, is that true with you? Because when I was looking at this too, I go, okay, it's probably a male demo, right? But then I was thinking there's a lot of badass women out there and I bet they would love this branding and love like I'm sober. So like to me, that's a perfect drink to drink at a bar. It's like a conversation starter. So do you have a large women um, demographic too? We do, yeah. And it's probably one of the fastest growing. It's like, yeah, out of the gate liquid death, the low hanging fruit was dudes. Of course. So of course it was like, maybe it was like 75% kind of male in the very early days. Now I think it's we're more like 40% women or more. Wow, that's incredible. Know. And you just, if you go on social and look up hashtag liquid death, on Instagram and just scroll through the people who are naturally posting. I mean, lots of women, like it's it's not it's not all metal dudes. Yeah, you know, yeah, like yeah. you kind of get to see, you know, and even though the brand has a what you'd maybe call more metal aesthetic to it. Yeah. But in the same vein, horror movies have a visual metal aesthetic to them but the entertainment value goes beyond just what the aesthetic is. And there's a lot of people who can appreciate the comedy of, of what we do. Because at the end of the day, we're not being serious. Anyone who likes us doesn't think, oh, Liquid Death thinks it's so bad. It's like, no, everyone gets the joke yeah. that we're sort of making fun of all this big corporate extreme marketing that's we've been watching for decades. Dude, I always do a lot of prep for these and I was checking out your website and I actually saw the uh, gentleman downstairs who's like the website guy. I was like, you do incredible work because there's two things on the website that would just 
made me laugh. One is the woman shotgunning a can of water, right? Yeah. It's like so ridiculous, yeah. but funny. And then the other one reminded me of like a Mountain Dew commercial where the guy is drinking a can, jumping out of an airplane. Oh yeah, the like skydiver. The skydiving yeah. guy, yeah. It's like, this is like, we're so extreme, we're so badass. And you're kind of, the way I take that as the viewer is like, it's kind of tongue in cheek. Like guys, we're selling water here. We're just fucking around. Yeah, I mean, we all, don't take this seriously. There's no such thing as an extreme beverage, you know. <laughs> yeah. there, like, there's no reason that drinking an energy drink makes you a better skydiver. You know, <laughs> in fact, like a lot of these extreme sports athletes who are sponsored by energy drinks, they don't actually drink them. Like, they're legit athletes with trainers that are like very careful when they put in their bodies. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. So it's kind of it. It really is sort of bullshit. It's just like it's a marketing gimmick that they've tapped into and they owned at a period of time when other brands weren't coming after action sports athletes. Energy drinks kind of came in and like, were the only people writing checks to these people. So mm -hmm. they're like, hey, I'm a punk band. I don't have a lot of source of money and this company wants to give me money. I'll take the money. Yeah. Even if I don't drink the product. Yep. Um, but water, I think, is something that everybody actually drinks. And it's, I think, especially, you know, we don't, we haven't gone heavy after action sports stuff. Okay. Because these big energy drink companies, I mean, Monster's valued at 50 billion. Oh my God. One of the highest performing stocks of the last 30 years. Wow. Red Bull's probably valued at 60, 70 billion at least. Wow. So these are massive companies with huge checkbooks. Like we're not gonna go in and try to buy our way into action sports. Like, yeah. You know? um, so we always, you know, in the early days, we focus heavily on music because musicians, they have a way to make income beyond sponsorships. Athletes, it's hard. That's why you'll see pro athletes who are decked head to toe in a particular brand because yep. endorsement deals, especially for action sports, that's really how they make their living. They have to do that stuff. Musicians make money touring, merch, selling merch, yeah. licensing deals. Like you'll never see a whole band dressed head to toe in, in, in a brand because yeah. they don't need to do that. You yeah. know? And we know that from a cool factor standpoint, people would much rather promote Liquid Death than a lot of this other kind of, these other brands. So and the other difference too, think about it, you're a music nut who came up in the scene. I think musicians are trusted more because there's always, and there always will be, the fear of selling out. Even though it's more acceptable now in the days of TikTok and influencers selling and hoodies and everything else they sell, for bands, it's still cool to kind of be not dressed head to toe like a NASCAR driver, yeah, right? Yeah, it's yeah. cool to like, nah, man, you don't see me endorsing anything and I'm cool and I'm doing it. So I think if you get a musician to kind of endorse your product, to me at least, as just a casual viewer, it carries more weight to me than the extreme sports guy with a can of liquid death in his hand. Yeah, you think it's true? Because I think you would, to your point, a musician, you don't see them do as many of these deals. So you know if they're doing something, they probably are legitimately into it. Mm -hmm. They're not, they don't need the money for that. No. You know, and now when it's a huge brand, like I think, I don't think people see when Coca-Cola gets some huge celebrity, I don't think they're like, oh, they must really love that. It's like, no, they know they're making millions and millions of dollars on that. Yeah. But for like these smaller brands that don't have multi-million dollar celebrity budgets, like if someone's promoting something, they know that there's probably a better chance that they're legitimate fans of the brand. And it's it's more of a special, unique thing than, yeah, how many, other, what other places do you see tons of upstart brands just instantly yeah. getting you know people to endorse it where and i think even just the endorsement stuff in general it's it's not as effective as it was and like we don't do you do a lot of collabs i want to talk about the martha stewart one later yeah, yeah, no, cuz that's incredible but do you do a lot of like collabs with athletes musicians influencers i mean we've our approach to using celebrities has been more similar to the way like saturday night live uses celebrities it's like we've created our own comedy machine that is liquid death, that's got our own tone of voice and unique thing. And we bring these celebrities kind of into our little machine and we create this custom content with these people where you're likely seeing them in a way you've never seen them before. Just like Saturday Night Live. It's like yep. these you know, serious actors go on there to not take themselves too seriously. Or politicians. Or politicians, yeah. yeah. And they go on there and they do, it's like, oh, I've never seen 
this pro football player act like an ass and it's it's really funny. Yeah. Um, that's more been our approach where we're not just having someone drink our product and be, ah, that's what I drink, you know, because <laughs> no one believes that anymore. Yeah. Um, so for us, it's we're an entertainment company first. Like we don't want to make marketing. We want to make people laugh. And we want to be the funniest thing in someone's feed every day. Yeah. That's our goal. Um, now, how do you, people, individuals, companies spend millions and millions of dollars to branding consultants to figure this shit out, right? What's our tone of voice? Who are we? What's the perfect avatar? All this nonsense, right? right. You somehow have figured this out. Now, previously you worked at Netflix and some companies, but famously for Gary Vee too, right? Where did you learn all this stuff? Well, I mean, part of the advice that we would, or I would try to give to companies when I was working in more of the service industry of like, yeah. oh, we help you make marketing and brand. I've always had a point of view that a company's tone of voice and brand really can't be that much different than the top decision maker. So you can hire all these creative people that want to make this cool brand, but if the guy at the top who has to approve everything doesn't like it, doesn't understand it, it's never going to be, never see the light of day, or they're going to water it down in a way where it's not really what it is, and it's this weird hodgepodge of stuff that goes out. So I always tell people the simplest way to create a strong brand is literally have your brand mimic the people who run the company. Like if the CEO is really into tennis and knows tennis better than anybody else and is a guy that understands the worlds of like high class culture, build your brand around that because you know it better than anybody else. And when it comes time to make a decision, what's our avatar? What's our tone of voice? It's way easier to make that decision because you're the one that is it's replicating you, yep. you know? And if you find a way to make your brand work in that voice, that's the way that you can truly have a, an authentic and powerful brand because you're not trying to be something that you're not. at a core, you're not, you know? Like, yeah, you and you can try and, and brands do it, but it's a lot more expensive and it's a lot harder because the guy making the decisions doesn't know how to make the decision on the brand because, oh, that's not me, so, how do I know? Oh, I got to hire a guy that knows, but then I got to trust that the guy knows. And then I got to hire these people that know how to make this thing because there's not a clear direction from this guy. So it just gets a lot harder to do. But the easiest way is if you can find a way to make your brand a reflection of you who's running the company, the decisions get a lot easier. Oh, yeah, no, don't do that. Do that. I wouldn't do that. Yeah. I would do this. So where do you learn this stuff? Back to the question. Like, how did you figure all this out? Because I've never, that is so insightful. I've never heard anyone talk about that when they're talking about brand building for a company. Because when I think of that, I think of just the situation you described. The CEO of Procter & Gamble. You know, I'll make a mass generalization. Probably an old white guy, right? Yeah, right Maybe yeah. he likes golf or whatever. Yeah, yeah. But he's got a ton of these products that have nothing to do with him or his interests or his likes. But yet he's still got to sell a, an air freshener or whatever he's selling. So that's how I picture most companies working. But it makes so much sense the way you describe it. And why are people getting it wrong? Are they just trying to be somebody they're not? And, and Procter & Gamble, it, to your point, it is an extreme example where that's like a bajillion dollar yeah, company that has course. all these brands. And it's, it's a little bit of a different game there. But if you're just yeah. talking about you're trying to get a brand you're trying to build a brand from scratch yep. and you're running that brand. You know, you always like one of the best pieces of advice I've got as an entrepreneur is like, you've got to find out what do you care about more than the average person, know about more than the average person. And in theory, will have more fun working harder on than the average person because you have to have a competitive advantage. 100%. So trying to find like, what is it that you know or understand better than most other people and try to make your brand around that because now you're already baking in the competitive advantage about, especially when you go to raise money. The big question isn't, is your idea the right idea? It's, is this the right person to execute this idea. Founder first, right? right. Who's the right. founder? Do we believe in him? Yeah. Or so many investors say that we don't invest in ideas, we invest in people. 
Um, So if you start there as you're starting a company, it's like, how am I the right exact person to do this? Because it's leveraging my own personal background, knowledge, interests, where I know about this more than the average person does. You're already going to be so far ahead of these people who are trying to, you know, just create something that they're not. And then they got to go find the right person to execute it. Again, it just gets a lot more expensive, takes more time. And in any kind of startup, I mean, speed is everything. Mm-hmm. Like you have to be able to move really fast and, make and quick cheap. decisions and cheap and cheap. Right. So is this your first company? Have you always been entrepreneurial? I think I've always been entrepreneurial in the sense that, you know, growing up, you know, starting to play in bands since like, you know, eighth grade. A band was always like a little mini company. You know, it was like, I'm silk screening our t-shirts and we're DIY. selling them. Yeah, it's all DIY. Yeah, like pr- pressing CDs, like <laughs> dealing with show promoters and making money playing and managing like a bunch of personalities of people to all kind of be on the same page to do something. Not easy. Not easy, no. But I think it was, that definitely gave me the taste of like that do-it-yourself independence, creating your own thing, you know, not just being like a cog in a giant corporate machine. And I see you, just to interrupt, I see you smiling as you're reminiscing. Yeah. So was that, I mean, a special time in your life that you look back with like fond memories of? Yeah, totally. I think that's always the dream, right? It's like, well, when people ultimately have like, very successful exits of companies and you don't have to work. Like what, what's the dream? I want to do the stuff that get, you know, was the most fun. The things that I remember, like, Oh, I want to play music. I want to do this. Like no one says, Oh, I can't wait till I'm rich so that I can go work in more cubicles, (laughs) you know? Uh, Yeah. So I think it's always been, Hey, this is, this was always my true passion. And I, I want to, create things, put cool things into the world, make people laugh. Like that was always what made me happy. And then, you know, I went through this career of graphic design and then advertising where it was kind of like the right way for like a creative person to to make a good living. It's like, oh, you can have tattoos and go to work. Mm -hmm. and, um, And make things. Yeah, and make things and advertising specifically you can make people laugh, you know? And that was always, like, I was always big in comedy. Like my dad, you know, we used to watch Rodney Dangerfield movies at holidays. Like, you know, we never really watched dramas, like as a family, like it was always comedy, comedy. So I always liked um, humor and finding a way in advertising for different brands. We were able to make some funny things for brands, but then ultimately, you know, along that path, you, you start to see where brands get things wrong, you start to see like, oh, this the reason most commercials are bad are not because advertising agencies are not creative, it's because these clients will come in and just kill ideas or water them down or for, because at the ultimate day, they're paying you. So they're they, the boss. They're the boss, they get to do what they wanna do. I always use the, I, I also use the example of like, imagine if you're a, well-known, like you're a professional chef like Anthony Bourdain um, and someone comes into your high-end restaurant and says, all I want is a bowl of cereal, but I'll pay you $20,000 for a bowl of cereal. You'll give it to them. Of course. But how happy are you? Just, you're you're a famous chef and you're just serving bowls of cereal in your restaurant all day. And is that where you are? I think so, yeah. It's like eventually you're just like, hey, you know, this is a good living. Um, I'll do this, it pays the bills. like. It's way better than working at a bank. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. yep. Um, but ultimately, I was always thinking of what else. Like, what what's my what do I ultimately want to do? Mm-hmm. How do I parlay this experience that I have into something that's my own thing, where I can make the creative decisions and do the things that I think will make a brand successful in today's day and age as a marketer? Because I again, you get this. I got to see so many different companies make things that totally failed. I got to see the things that really took off. I got to see the inner workings of marketing departments of big corporate you know, brands, or we had to go into those meetings. And you got to really just get a feel for 
what was happening and, and why things don't work and why things work. And I got to have my own take on that and sort of, you know, put my money where my mouth was. And now that I have my own brand, I'm going to make the decisions that I think I've been trying to get brands to make for a long time and they kind of fall on deaf ears. Let me yeah. try to do it myself and see what happens. So why water? I mean, where does that, where does the idea come from? I mean, it seems insane yeah. on, a, on the surface, you know, it's like, why would you, it's like creating another jeans company. It's like, you've got to have rocks in your head. There's already a thousand brands of jeans for every body type and every type of consumer. Yet, every fall when you walk into Nordstrom's wherever you buy jeans, there's a new cool jean, right? So there's always room. Why water? Well, it started with more of like the conceptual approach of how do you have a lot of fun marketing something healthy? I don't think it was initially like, oh, it's going to be water. It oh, okay. was, you know, I was working for a small agency at the time in Tennessee, and we started doing some of the first funny, irreverent marketing for the organic industry. Oh, cool. So like we launched one of the first organic protein shakes from this company called Organic Valley. And, you know, they made milk and butter and things that would sell in Whole Foods. Very dip They knew it was going to be a very different audience to launch a protein shake. Like they want to talk to people that are in the gym, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, that kind of trying to muscle up. It's a different audience than the people buying, you know, organic butter <laughs> at, at Whole Foods. For right? sure. Yeah. yeah. So they came to us knowing, hey, we have a normal ad agency that does a lot of our stuff. We kind of came to you, you guys who do a little bit crazier stuff, like mm -hmm. help us figure this out. And we did the super successful campaign for them that kind of went viral on the Internet. It was really funny. And that for me was a little bit of the aha moment of, yeah, like I've been into health for a long time. Like even, you know, I don't, I didn't drink soda at that time mm -hmm. um, or hardly ever. Um, I was into the whole, you know, organic made a bunch of sense to me. Like I was a vegetarian for six years at one point. Yeah, I'm, I'm not me anymore, too. but I was, yeah. Yep. Um, a lot of my friends like who were in bands, like they were vegan and into health and, you know, I always kind of knew that it was weird that like these energy drink companies just own alternative culture for no yeah. real reason. Yep. So it was just kind of this. Because there's a lot of people like that. A lot of people like that. Yeah. So I just started thinking like, hey, there's something here. Like how come, like what if we made a healthy product that is super funny and irreverent, even more so than like these big kind of giant energy drink companies that are empires at this point right oh, yeah. um and then i started thinking okay well what would it be and i'm like well you know I, I i always did drink a lot of water and i would always tell people like especially if you're drinking alcohol it's like dude drink water like you'll feel so much better in the morning and it's like most people just don't drink enough water bro i carry around a half gallon jug of water or a, yeah, half gallon. Because I the goal is to drink a gallon a day. Yeah. And if I'm just drinking cans and bottles, like I I can't keep count. Yeah. But I just know I fill this up twice and drink it. Like right. problem solved. But I'm the same way. Like you got to drink water, man. Yeah. So water was like, so water was an interesting idea. And it was like, oh yeah, like what about water? Like, and the other thing I wanted to make sure that it was a a product category where the winners were determined by brand. What do you mean? Like the water brands that are top sellers, it's are not because of taste. <laughs> King, there's nothing worse than Dasani or Aquafina. But if you're in an airport, that's what you got usually. But at the end of the day, if you're blind taste, taste testing it, are yeah. you actually picking it out? Probably not. Dasani, I can. T the only really I one, bet you can. The one I can <laughs> definitely tell is Evian because that has a real specific taste to it. But you're right. The rest, Poland Springs, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. water. I mean, and the data shows that the reason people are buying Fiji or these brands it has nothing to do with the taste. What is it? It's brand. Yeah. Yeah. It's like it's the bottle. It's the story that they think this comes from. It's what do you want to communicate to yourself when you're walking around with a Fiji versus a Dasani versus a whatever. Yep. Um, alcohol industry too, heavy brand. Like you could talk to people who are like, oh, I only drink Grey Goose. Yep. They are not picking Grey Goose out of a blind taste test of 10 vodkas if their life depended on it. There's yeah. no way. Yep. It's all brand. It's the bottle. It's where I experienced it, what club have I had it at? Like there's all this stuff that adds into your connection to a brand huh. that has nothing to do with taste. Yeah. 
if you tried to launch something that was really unique, like, I don't know, like we want to launch a kombucha juice or, you know, like now you have to explain to people, what is this? Is there a market for this? How am I supposed to drink this? Like it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of time because you're trying to create literally this thing from nothing that now brand isn't as much of a play because A, there's not a ton of other brands in the space. So you're trying to create the space. So water, all of a sudden it was, there's a ton of brands. The product is essentially to most people, not that different from one to the other. So the best brands are the ones who are winning. And we knew that like from a brand standpoint, we could we were more experienced than almost any anybody else. And, and we, who's really killing it no, none of them. Right. And they I all mean, were very, doing... they were all very same. Like yeah. they all were kind of, they looked the same. They sounded the same. There was nothing interesting. And then you start kind of researching more. It's like, oh, bottled water is now a $22 billion beverage category. It's the number one beverage category in the US. It had just passed carbonated soft drinks like wow. the year before we started. So it's like, oh, wow. Massive category to go into. Very stale. You can totally win with brand. It's not about how many electrolytes you have. It's not about the taste of the water. It's about brand. Like, um, And you know branding better than the rest of these guys. Yeah. Um, so it was kind of like, that's how it sort of came to water. It was like, it was no starting to check all the, yeah, yeah. Che checking all the boxes. Yeah. Um, and, and that's what, you know, as you, as an entrepreneur and you have to ultimately go raise capital, those so were you working at the time? Is this all going on in the background? And it is, yeah. You're looking at statistics of beverage sales and this whole thing as you're working your day job. Yeah, working my day job, you know, not super happy in my day job, like not making anything terribly creative. It's just kind of, again, I've been paying there. the bills kind of stuff. Oh, yeah. Um, so, yeah, it was my side project that when I had time, I would keep kind of like noodling on um, until eventually it was, you know, this fully formed thing. And it wasn't, a lot of people think, you know, all these genius ideas, you just think of it in the shower one day. It's like, no, it was this piece of wood that like I chopped away at for a year or two until you finally had like, okay, now we have what this should be and all the details figured out and thought through. Um, it, it was meticulous. And it sounds like like your approach and your skill set, it didn't have to be water, you know, me looking from the outside, I go, I look at you and go, he could have probably made screwdrivers work or whatever the product yeah. happened to be. Yeah. It just happens to be water. Yeah. And I think we're kind of proving that's the case that we started off as, you know, still water in a can. Very different product category, like you're competing against Fiji and all these other like premium still water brands. And then we were starting to like, beat those guys in the retailers where we were being sold. Then we launched Premium Sparkling, which is the black can. Now you're competing against Perrier, San Pellegrino, completely different set and even different customer yep. than water. It's not, there's not a lot of overlap there. Yep. So winning against those brands in a different category with kind of a different product. Then we just launched the Flavored Sparkling this past January, which is almost more like a healthy soda because we use three grams of agave in it to give it a little bit of sweetness and flavor because we want it to be different than all the zero cow, zero taste LaCroix <laughs> they, brand. They really are zero taste. Yeah, there, there was an internet meme where it was like, LaCroix tastes like someone whispered a fruit name in the other room. <laughs> <laughs> That's so true. Yeah, so, and then now our flavors are insanely successful and we're like the number two sparkling on Amazon. After, I mean, we, we made that, like it was three months of selling on Amazon. We were the number two sparkling on Amazon. Wow. So I think it's showing that having a, a, a truly powerful brand, it transcends like individual product categories. Mm -hmm. You know, like you, it can be, it is a much bigger thing. That's why we're able to sell merchant apparel, even though like you don't see many beverage companies. Forget it. Have I ever seen a someone wearing a water brand hoodie in my life? Never. Yeah. Perrier, Fiji water. No one, I'm sure they're out there somewhere. I mean, what you do see is like long established legacy brands. Like Coca-Cola. Yeah, maybe wear. Budweiser. Sure. You know, but these are brands that are worth 
$200 billion. Like they've got a hundred years of brand building yep. to, to lean on. Yeah. And then they're finally, you know, they're able to do it. They weren't always able to do it. No. But, so yeah, I think that's, that's been our approach is like, it, we're building a brand and the brand is bigger than just water in a can. Yeah. So you've got water in a can. Now, why the Alps? Are you insane? If I don't know anything about water or the beverage industry, but I go, okay, I want to put it in a can. There's got to be a reason no one else has put it in a can. It's probably hard, right? But I see the benefits. And then two, I want something close by to reduce, like, I don't want to ship water from Fiji. That's got to be expensive. We're a startup. I'm like, I don't know, there's fresh springs in the US somewhere and where you're from, right? In Pennsylvania, there's some great springs you could use. Why the Alps and why cans? Cans, because as we were developing the idea for Liquid Death in a water company, you know, one thing that was starting to pop up at that time, which was like 2000, 17-ish was when this was when the, kind of the, the early stages of liquid death, you started to see all this backlash against plastic. Single-use plastic oh, was yeah. popping up more and more. Hotel chains were saying, hey, we're going to be eliminating single-use plastic by X year. So it was becoming, it was almost like plastic was almost becoming like the new tobacco. Yeah, 100%. You know, like people were against it. So it's like, okay, well, you know, we don't necessarily think it makes sense to put water in this thing that people don't want. So what about cans? And it's like, oh, well, cans are cool because it just, it looks cool. Yeah. Um, it, you know, it doesn't feel like water. It would stick out in the category. And then again, digging into it more, it's like, oh, cans are infinitely recyclable. Like you can recycle them over and over again. And the more you dig, it's like, oh, actually the entire recycling industry is built on cans because plastic recycling is a sham. It's a sham. Yeah. Yep. No one wants it. China doesn't even want it anymore. Yeah. It, it is not economically viable to recycle. And there's more and more things coming out where it's, I mean, lobbyists dating back to the early 80s when people were starting to get worried about plastic when it was having a huge boom. Mm -hmm. And they wanted everyone to just, oh no, it's recyclable. <laughs> but to your point, a lot of what was getting marked as recycled was just product that was getting shipped to China. And they could say, oh, that was recycled. Mm -hmm. um, now that China has said, no, we don't want it anymore. Now you look at the recycling rates and there's new figures coming out. That's like 5% of plastic is actually getting recycled, mm -hmm. not 30%. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, we knew that cans, they checked a lot of boxes also. It's yeah. like, oh, cooler format, you know, better option in terms of recyclability. Seems like your demo too, younger, definitely more eco-conscious than generations before too. Yeah, so that, yeah. that helps. Yeah, everybody's more yeah. health conscious, more eco-conscious. Sure. Um, but yeah, once we decided, okay, we want to do, you know, natural spring water in a can. You know, a lot of these big water companies are just purified municipal tap, where they basically strip all the good and bad out of the water. They add a tiny, tiny little bit of mineral back into it. But it's, it, I mean, it's highly processed tap water, right? <laughs> that doesn't sound that appealing for spending a premium on a bottle of water. Mm -hmm. So we knew that, hey, as a premium product, one thing people do care about water is the source. Like people, oh, it's from France or it's from a mountain, it's from a spring. I'll pay three bucks for yeah, that. Yeah, that, that feels like, you know, and, and it's not, it's same thing with like Whole Foods. Like people yeah. like natural things. Oh, this is natural. Like it, it has a higher perceived value. It's not a highly processed thing. Mm -hmm. So when it came to finding who could produce this in the US, there was not a single bottler who could put spring water in cans. Why? Because canning operations are insanely expensive. Like you're talking hmm. 15, $20 million investments for big canning capabilities at the source because it's way too expensive to try to tanker truck water from a spring source halfway across the country to a bottler. Like you would go under. So what happens? Does Fiji make the bottles in Fiji then ship the bottles? Well, no, Fiji's plastic. There's a lot of springs. Oh yeah, I guess yeah, so, yeah. There's a lot of springs that can do spring water in plastic bottles in the US. There's oh yeah, endless. I guess so, yeah. There's sure. just no one who could, who could do it in cans at oh, scale. Gotcha, okay. So it didn't exist, so. So what, did you have to make a canning thing in the Alps? No, we just opened our search up to Europe. We said, hey, okay, there's no one in the US who can do this. Maybe okay. there's someone in Europe that can do it. And we found this place in Austria that, you know, they had 
you know, their own spring sources and they had canning capabilities and we flew out, we met with them, really liked them. And, you know, we just started working with them and, you know, the economics at the time of producing and, you know, even we had to ship it to the U.S., you know, there was can shortages in the U.S. where people couldn't get cans. There, there was a lot more cost where it wasn't even that much. It wasn't even really more expensive. In a lot of scenarios, it was actually cheaper. Um, so we're like, OK, this, this is where we'll at least start out doing it. Um, you know, will we stay in Austria forever? Probably not. Like now that like it's become more of a category, there's a lot more quality spring water options that can can in yeah. the U.S. So. It, it, you know, obviously it's better when we don't have to always ship water over the ocean you <laughs> yeah, know, eventually, but it was just kind of, that's where we had to start. And now I think we're getting closer to like, Hey, maybe eventually we, we bring it, we bring it here to the U S once we find a quality source and, and all of that. So you go back to getting the funding, right? So you get your funding. Where did you get the funding anyway to start this thing? Our first real like venture backer was a company called Science Inc. Okay. And they were behind Dollar Shave Club. That, that oh, brand. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, very well versed in like the direct to consumer packaged goods kind of space um, where, you know, cool brands want to dis- disrupt big industries, like mm-hmm. razors or water. Yeah. Um, so they, they were kind of our first real partners and they've sort of been, you know, true partners to us throughout the entire life cycle of the company. And since then, we brought in tons of different kind of institutional investors and angel investors and all that throughout all of our different rounds of funding. Sure. But okay, so you're, you you got the idea for the company, you've mapped it all out, you got your check. All right, now we go. Now, I'm guessing it took a lot of time from getting that check to figuring out, okay, someone in Austria can can water and how do we bring it over and how what quantities do we buy in and all this stuff and then we also hey by the way we got to get in store so people can buy it how long did it take from i got the check to i sold a can in a store what does that look like well we actually had to figure out a lot of that stuff before the check comes Oh, you have to have it all mapped out yeah, first. because nobody wants to write a check for you to go figure it out. <laughs> yeah, like, true. You need to de-risk the deal <laughs> as much as possible. Okay. So once we, you know, we launched Liquid Death as if it was a real product on Facebook first, even though we didn't have real product. We said, we did like a 3D render of a can. We shot this funny $1,500 commercial using a fake can. Huh. And we made it seem real just to kind of test the idea first because... Let's just see how people react. To Proof this. of concept. Proof of concept. Yeah. Yep. In a, a low cost way where if it doesn't work, we're out a few grand. grand. Yeah. yeah, yeah okay. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, four months in, the video had like 3 million views <laughs> and the page had, you know, 80,000 followers, which was, you know, more than Aquafina. That on is Facebook. genius. And then. So you can take that to the VCs. Yeah. So then now. you take that, to, not even just the VCs, the very, very first money we raised was just sort of like that friends and family money, like former bosses of mine. It's like, here, I'll write a 5K check. I'll write a 10K check. And you kind of mass together maybe like 150 grand just to do a, a, a limited, like the smallest production run you can do. Mm-hmm. But even before then, I had this social traction. Then I had to figure out where were we going to produce it and what was the cost going to be. So I had to like really figure that out. So then once I had the Austria producer, I had pricing. We could really map out. Oh, I got it. Okay. Then the friends and family are like, oh, yeah, together like <laughs> there's a producer they know what it's going to cost they know what they're going to do and then once we actually had physical product then the institutional investors will start taking you more seriously oh these guys actually have it figured out they've they've got physical product in hand now we feel like this is more de-risk and, and we can get involved and that's kind of been like the whole raising process is like you're showing more and more traction that continues to further de-risk what the success of the company will be. You know, and I think there's a great lesson in there. I interviewed this guy, his his Instagram handle's boy with no job. And he's like a meme page kind of, right? He's got a million and a half followers, but there's a lot of people like that. So anyway, long story short, he wanted to create like like a wine-based sparkling beverage. And... You know, he's successful when he launched and got all the money. It's doing well and everything. And I asked him too, you know, what advice does he have for the aspiring entrepreneur out there, you know, in consumer brands? And he goes, make the fucking product. 
It doesn't cost that much money. Maybe unless you're yeah, no, canning yeah, yeah, something right, yeah, in the yeah. Alps, that may cost yeah. more. But if you're making a widget, right? right. You, you could scrape together a couple grand, make it. And then he said, you know, and then get people excited about it. Chances are someone knows somebody who invests in brands. Yeah. So maybe you get your 10 grand there and maybe right. that's how you start. Like what advice do you have for that young person who kind of has the idea for something? Maybe they have a marketing kind of plan in their head somewhere. What do they do? I, I don't think enough people take advantage of like the digital world that we live in. Hmm. You know, like social media is the ultimate testing platform. Like it's sure you can test, thing in a, test things in a focus group where there's like a bunch of people that agreed to a survey and come into a room. But the way people behave in those situations is not often reflective of what actually happens in the market. Hmm. Cause it's like a weird scenario. You yeah. know? You're asking people, what do you not like about this? Well, you know, liquid death would have never survived a focus group. <laughs> They'd have been like, oh, this is confusing. It looks like beer, I'd never buy this. Like, But social enables you to test things where you can run a paid ad on social and put $5 behind it if you want. And it's like, let's just say, I don't know, you're going to create a protein bar company. You don't even need to make physical protein bars. You can just design what would your protein bar look like? What would the name be? Because you're simulating the way that people would ultimately come to it at scale. Like if you're any kind of CPG company, you're going to be using the internet to market it. Otherwise, what are you doing? Yeah, of course. So... In the future, when you're bigger, you're going to be marketing this to people on the internet in, in a, a way very similar to this. And the success of that is probably going to have a huge determining factor on the success of your company because it's all about how do you acquire new customers. You don't get to taste test all your potential customers. So they're not going to taste it. Mm -hmm. They're going to react to and add for it. And are they interested by it? Wow. Are they going to click on it? Yep. Do they care to learn more about it? So anybody can test that. Like you can test wow, what so this smart. looks like, a name, whatever. And even if it's not going to tell you everything, but you might try this and say, hey, well, I did this and it got a thousand likes, which is kind of impressive for a $10 spend. Mm -hmm. Or it might be, hey, I spent 300 bucks. The post got two likes and zero comments on, over a month. Yeah, scrap that. Yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe this is something that's not working here. Mm -hmm. At least you're doing something that is so low cost that either A, you can try multiple things. Yeah. You just find cheap ways to test something without having to go the full nine yards to be like, well, I got to figure out how I'm going to make a protein bar and figure out how to put it in a package. And then I'm going to go to a farmer's market. And I'm going to try to sell it. Yep. Is that really accurate if it's going to be a successful brand? Because if the name's not right, the packaging's not right, the type of product isn't right. Yeah. All that hard work doesn't mean anything. Sure. It's just wasted time. There's other ways to test if those things are, are viable that are that are easier. I have never even thought about that or heard anyone say that. Like to me, you know, I go, wait, why would you advertise something? You gotta make it first and then you advertise. Like, why would you ever because what if somebody wants it? Like, what do you do then? Like, that's I think probably how most other people think too. That is such a great idea, you know. And, and big companies do this all the time. Do they really? Like this is a thing? Well, not in this way, like the Cokes and Pepsis and Anheuser-Busch's of the world, like they have R&D departments. When they're gonna launch new products, yeah. they do so much testing and analysis to know what's right and what's not. Now they they use these, you know, there's these expensive testing networks and systems you can use and there's expensive focus groups and there's all this more clinical testing that a lot of, a lot of them do. And maybe some of them incorporate some of this social stuff as part of it, but, um, it's a, a lot more capital intensive way to like test an idea before you launch it. Social is just like the everyday person's easy way. Like it's easy to set up an ad account. It's easy to do whatever spend you want. Like it's just a more realistic way of testing something out with the resources, you know, and any person can have basically. Wow. you. I mean, that's... That's worth the interview right there. I mean, I think that's a tip that can really help real people. You know, any final words of advice for the aspiring entrepreneur or the one, you know, or the young entrepreneur who's still trying to figure this out, spending money, not sure when any sales, if they even happen, are going to come in. Like, 
any suggestions for, for them or, or tips or lessons you've learned along the way? Yeah, I think what we've sort of been talking about, which is find ways to test the viability of your idea. Because I think there's a misconception that, oh, as long as I work hard, it's going to work. But, you know, I, I, I say this a lot. It's like hard work's a waste of time if your idea sucks. You know, it's like you can work as hard as you want, spend as many hours. If what you're making is the wrong thing, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter, you know. And you, you have to find some way to to know is like, is this working? Is this viable? And even as you're working hard on that thing, you might hit some kind of hurdle and you have to be open to being flexible and pivoting. Like you can't be so locked into this thing and not be flexible at all because you might hit something and then you're just literally never able to get past it when if you just were willing to be a little flexible, you could have found a way around it and, and got to the next level of what it is. Like I've always had to be very flexible with things. Like the original Liquid Death Can didn't look exactly like that. Mm -hmm. Like we went through iterations based on what we were learning of like what was working or not working. And you know, even as we took our strategy to how we were gonna launch, it was like we had this plan, oh, it's gonna be this. Things happen, it's like, oh no, let's pivot over to this. And it's like, oh, this is working. And, you know, like for instance, like we started launching Liquid Death in bars and clubs before retailers, because it's like, oh, those guys get the joke. This clearly makes sense in a bar. Yeah, oh yeah. Yeah, you know, but then when the pandemic hits and there's no bars, now it's gonna be a retail play. Yeah. And then how do you adjust your strategy to, to be retail focused, even if that wasn't the original plan? So I think, yeah, you always have to just be flexible and, and realize like what's working, what's not working. Right on, man. Dude, it was a pleasure. Yeah, lots yeah. of, you know, lots of good things in there. So good. thank you for watching everybody. Make sure you subscribe, turn on notifications, interviews with the biggest entrepreneurs in the world who give you not only business tips, but life tips too. Every Tuesday, 10 a.m. and available on all podcast platforms. So go check them out. We've got I mean, you never know who's gonna be next. We have athletes, we have artists, we have startup founders, celebrity entrepreneurs, so a lot to learn. So thank you so much for watching, guys. See ya.